0: Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next 30 minutes, Poland says it's ready to send German-made tanks to Ukraine and that Berlin's opinion is secondary. We'll have the latest. Also ahead, we head to the oldest society in the world to examine what can Japan do about its ageing population. France's government is to push ahead with raising its pension age. We'll ask whether it will happen or not. All that plus the latest business headlines and a flick through the morning's papers from Zurich. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. And we begin today's programme in Poland, where the country's defence minister has sent an official request to Germany to export leopard tanks to Ukraine. However, this request has been seen as secondary. As the Polish prime minister said, they're going to send them anyway. Well, joining me to discuss this is Michael Baranowski, who's senior fellow and director of the German Marshall Fund's Warsaw office. A very good afternoon to you, Michael.
1: Great to talk with you.
0: So just explain to us, what is Poland ready to do?
1: Well, Poland uh, has officially re- requested the government of Germany to allow it, to allow us, Poland, send our leopards' tanks, 14 of them, to Ukraine. Germany as a country that produces the tanks has to approve this request before the tanks are uh, sent, uh, and the Polish Minister of Defense, as well as uh, Polish President and Prime Minister also are trying to convince Germany to join Poland and others in sending their own tanks, to their own leopard tanks, to Ukraine.
0: And there is a really clear message being sent out by the Prime Minister, isn't it? I mean, Prime Minister Morawiecki has said, I'll say it bluntly, Ukraine and Europe will win this war with or without Germany.
1: Well, that's, yes, (laughs) it's absolutely a blunt message. It's unfortunately true that Germany is not helping as much as it could. Uh, and it came out very clearly in this request, the Ukrainian request for uh, German leopard tanks that was, uh, that was joined by, this request was joined by pledges of a number of European countries, including Poland, but also the request from the United States for Germany to go ahead uh, and both allow the transfer and to send their own tanks. To Ukraine.
0: Just tell us what the reaction in Poland has been to this because so close to the Ukraine war you've been you know, living and breathing that what's been going on with the, the neighbors for, for a year now and there is this f- sense politically at least that Poland is now prepared to go it alone and to build coalitions separate to to, to any previous alliance with Germany.
1: Well <clears throat> Germany will remain an important ally for Poland within NATO but as you said, uh, all, but also, also uh, citizens of the Baltic states, of Romania, and many others, see the war in Ukraine, see the Ukrainian struggle against the invasion of Russia as really something that directly impacts our security, security of, the, of Europe, security of NATO. That's why all the stops have been pulled. Uh, This is not the first time that Poland is sending tanks. Poland has sent over 250 older tanks, T-72s, to Ukraine very early in the the, uh, war. Number of powered uh, artillery, and of course, there is the support of the entire Polish uh, society, really, for the 8 million of Ukrainian refugees that cross into Poland, two of them. Two million of them stayed in Poland and are very much welcomed by the Polish society.
0: And as a result of the way that Poland has experienced the war, what is the general view towards Germany and its position?
1: Frustration, I would say, and and anger among among some that Germany could do more and in fact should do more as the leading uh, European country, as the biggest economy of Europe, and the, 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 this frustration and anger, um, disappointment, is directed primarily at uh, the Chancellor, uh, Chancellor Scholz, because it is clear in Poland that it's uh, not a consensus in Germany not to help more, uh, not to provide more military even aid to Ukraine. In fact, public opinion polls show support in uh, Germany across uh, the political spectrum but it's the chancellor that is holding up this decision and it's not taking a, really a good opportunities to add like the last week's meeting in Rammstein where he could also announce this change with a new German defense minister that was nominated.
0: And c- considering more in the long term and the, the role of Germany I mean we, all, we we have what's happening in Poland Suggestion that you know various member states of the European Union are prepared to go a alone. We have Estonia's foreign minister saying Germany is an engine of Europe, but that creates a particular responsibility. Could we be That's seeing right. signs here that the rest of Europe is is willing to 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 shift the power away from Germany when it comes to to, to being central to so many decisions?
1: Hmm. Well, power will not be easily shift, uh, shifted. Uh, Germany is the biggest economy. It's very important politically germany is unfortunately an, an unnecessary burning through its political capital uh within europe and within transatlantic alliance because this this frustration is also apparent in washington dc burning through this political capital um, not making obvious uh, decisions on supporting ukraine Decisions that I'm absolutely convinced, as many of my German experts and doc- diplomatic colleagues, Germany will end up making them. In the end, it will just—it's just a matter of time before Germany is under so much pressure that they will indeed first allow others like Poland to send their leopard but, leopards, but eventually will provide their own uh, leopard tanks to Ukraine. But it will be already after they have. Burned through so much goodwill and political capital in Europe and beyond.
0: And while all this is happening, Vladimir Putin must be rather enjoying a schism within Europe.
1: Well, it, it is true that any tensions, any ob- o- open divisions of the alliance are are not good for us and are good for for, for Putin. Um, um, he he must be he must be glad that you as you said so at the same time let's not lose the view the broader view uh, that the west has been incredibly more united on support for ukraine and on sanctions against russia than anyone would expect um a year ago and that the military and economic help to ukraine has been tremendous and the last last Friday's meeting in Ramstein has been yet another and very substantial package, uh, regardless of the fact that the West could not agree on delivery of leopards. Many very important military um, military systems have been developed, and that's overall a very, very bad news for Putin. He knows that he is losing this uh, war also of support from the Western side.
0: Michael, very briefly, you said that eventually Germany will come round. How long do you think it'll take?
1: No idea. This is something that I hear, though, directly from very senior also officials uh, and certainly experts. The, uh, the only person that could give you this answer is um, Chancellor Scholz himself, and he's taking his sweet time to make this decision that will, I'm um, I'm pretty sure, will come Uh, to the end um, to be made by German.
0: Michael Baranowski, Senior Fellow and Director of the German Marshall Fund's Warsaw Office, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing. The time here in London is nine minutes past midday. A quick look now at the day's main headlines. Here's Emma Sell. Seven people have been killed in a mass shooting in the coastal Californian city of Half Moon Bay. It comes on the heels of another mass shooting in the southern Californian city of Monterey Park on Saturday that killed 11 people. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said personnel changes were being carried out at senior and lower levels following high-profile graft allegations. Zelensky did not identify the officials to be replaced, but several Ukrainian media outlets have reported that cabinet
2: ministers and senior officials could be sacked imminently. And Pakistan has restored its national power grid nearly 24 hours after a breakdown. Over 1,000
0: grid stations are now back online following the worst outage in months. Electricity should be fully restored across the country once power generators are back up. Those are the day's headlines here on Monocle24. Thank you very much indeed, Emma Searle. Now let's get the latest business headlines. We're joined by Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Welcome back to The Briefing, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Where do you want to begin?
3: I think we should begin with the UK government's borrowing, which is uh, got some new data out today, and it is not looking good, I have to say. The budget deficit in December was £27 billion. That's how much the UK government borrowed just in the month of December. It was the worst December on record. Just to put that in context, there are about... Roughly 27 million households in the UK, so that means the UK government borrowed a thousand pounds for every household in the UK. Now, the deficit is a lot worse than was being predicted uh, just about a year ago. The official uh, body which forecasts these things uh, reckoned that borrowing would fall below 100 billion pounds uh, for uh, this financial year. We're already up to 128 billion and we're not at the end of the year yet. Two of the key culprits, two of the biggest culprits for this big rise in government borrowing are the inflation problem, that is driving up the cost of government debt, a lot. of so borrowing more money and the interest payments are soaring and this is of course a sort of circular problem uh, and also the massive cost of energy, uh, something we didn't know uh, a year ago, or at least before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine uh, that is being very costly for a lot of governments around Europe in fact almost all governments around Europe are subsidising energy and the uk government has been putting a lot of money into subsidizing consumers bills so those two things really driving up government spending and adding to that borrowing bill
0: we have a a sort of a a venn diagram don't we of problems that sort of seem to be Mm. overlapping here i mean we're we're looking at the european union the eurozone is edging back into growth so they're clearly doing something right or something right is happening there but we also have the sharpest drop in uk business activity for two years how much is that affecting all this
3: well it's quite a mixed picture really actually the broadly the economic news in the uk is rather better than we thought uh, towards the end of last year remember the loads and loads of gloomy headlines In the fourth uh, quarter, Uh, many commentators, including the Bank of England, said we were heading for a very long recession. Some uh, commentators now, there's a forecast out today from Bloomberg Economics, say the UK could actually avoid recession in 2023. Their best guess is that output will actually uh, drop a tiny bit. But it may not be a full-blown recession, a recession defined as uh, two quarters, two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. And there is a fair chance that we will avoid that. So uh, if there is uh, a downturn, uh, worse than we're having at the moment, I think this applies to Europe as well as the UK. uh, It will probably be uh, a shallow one. So I think the economic picture is looking not nearly as bad as we thought uh, at the end of last year. And the other key thing is that this winter, so far, touch wood, we have avoided a major energy crisis. We've kind of managed to wean ourselves off Russian gas, I'm talking about uh, the rest of Europe rather than the UK, uh, without uh, a major uh, energy crisis.
0: Let's move on to, well, you're talking about energy. Um, a focus now on the future of energy and our reliance on, on various sources of power, nuclear being used as in something that's a staple of power everywhere but also being seen very much so in as the future but there is a big question being asked about how capable the the actual plants themselves are and how long lasting they're going to be
3: yeah, fascinating story. This this is the subject of Bloomberg's Big Take, which is something we uh, our daily look at uh, a big subject, a daily uh, deep dive. Now, countries across the world are desperate to lower their carbon emissions, and we're also facing a, a shortage of traditional fossil, fossil fuels, as mentioned before, that problem uh, with uh, gas. Now, the answer to this contradiction in many countries is to keep nuclear plants running beyond their uh, initial uh, lifespans. Now, what used to be the, the lifespan of a nuclear power plant was 40 years. That was the uh, the benchmark. And now some operators are pushing them not just to 60 years, but in some cases to 80 years. Uh, fascinating, uh, some of the stats in this uh, piece. Uh, the uh, US and EU uh, fa- uh, committed to cutting greenhouse uh, pollution by as much as 50% by 2030, uh, and the pressure to get to that Uh, Is really quite something. By the end of the decade, two thirds of the world's currently operating nuclear power plants uh, will be running on borrowed time Uh, there's an interesting uh, chart doesn't work very well on radio but I can see it
0: Uh, paint me a picture
3: (laughs) I will try paint a picture uh, which shows the age of the nuclear power plant fleets around the world and uh, the US already the average power plant uh, is more than 40 years old and that is supposed to be the point at which you shut down a nuclear power plant Uh, the US has about 90 reactors On on average, they are older than 40 years, and some of them uh, way beyond that. Some countries, uh, China being obviously an example, have got much younger fleets. China is planning to build another 70 nuclear power plants. Those are the ones already uh, either being built uh, or already been uh, they've been given planning permission for. So China is expanding uh, rapidly, like a lot of other things. So their fleet is much younger. But in many countries in the West, power plants power plants are old, and they'll be being extended way beyond uh, their original lifespan.
0: Ewan, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. 1315 in Paris, which is where we head to next, because France's government is pushing ahead with plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. The country's Labour Minister has said that the country needs to balance its books. Well, four more, we're joined down the line from Paris by the journalist, author, and Monocle 24 regular Agnès Parrier. Good afternoon, Agnes. Good afternoon. So this is a well-trodden path for many years, if not decades, that French governments have <laughs> tried to in- introduce pension reform. And this is generally the one that snaps the spine of any government. Um, what's happening with this one? <sighs>
4: Well, um, what is perhaps the the reform about? Well, um, probably the problem started in uh, the early 80s when uh, François Mitterrand, the then uh, French president, lowered the retirement age to 60 from 65. That was quite bold at the time and, of course, much appreciated by the French. But the problem is now we're paying. We're paying for this very bold move um, in the in the 80s, and there have been seven or eight changes in the system since. Um, and this is actually a much watered down uh, reform than uh, originally planned. Because I don't know if you remember just before COVID, and this is this was part of it, of his manifesto. President Macron wanted to um, raise the retirement age to 65. But now, uh, of course, because of COVID, that was postponed. And uh, and now it doesn't have a majority at the National national Assembly, so you had to water down. And so we're only talking about raising it from 60 to, to 64 by 2030. And if the reform passes, actually, if the reform goes ahead, France will still retire much earlier in 2030 than almost all EU nations. Um, in, in the UK, it's 60. 60 and and in germany 67 i believe Uh, but but you know the i mean it's a very sensitive issue because most french people unlike other european countries rely on the state pension system for um uh, for for what they get uh, after they retire um and as you know democracy in france uh Takes place, of course, in Parliament, but also very often in the streets. And trade unions, who are extremely powerful in the pro- in the public sector, um, are really flexing their muscles. And last week there was a huge strike: uh, railways, um, schools, and and it was uh, heavily followed uh, with 1.2 million people uh, protesting in the streets of France. And they have called for. A new day of strike uh, on Tuesday. So basically, uh, President Macron and his government are walking on eggshells because they don't want to make, um, they don't want to say anything that will trigger more discontent in the streets, and they really want to bring the, the debate at the National Assembly. This is this double
0: headache that the French government has and and seemingly always had. You you have this issue that people do not want the age of retirement to be raised for very, very obvious and understandable reasons. But at the heart of this, as you said, it's the trade unions. And we've, we've got the Labour Minister Olivier Dussopt saying, we disagree with the trade unions. I mean, woe betide you take on the trade union if, you, if you're a French government.
4: Well, you have to be very careful. You have to uh, choose your words very carefully because uh, there's, you know, high chances that the reform will. World- Pass because uh, the right is actually in favor of it um, and so um, you know there will be very long debates there, there might be some uh, amendments uh, the reform might actually be watered down even further um, and it will likely to pass on the other hand you really don't want the protest to get worse in the street and there's something that the government is watching very closely you don't want students uh, to join. Uh, the, the protest, because as you know, in France, if uh, students or even uh, pupils from the lycée uh, are in the streets, then it's usually the end of reforms, and the government usually has to bow.
0: So this has to go to the government, this has to go to Parliament. What exactly is going to happen next, Agnès?
4: Well, um, it's only in two weeks' time, but of course, a lot can happen in two weeks, especially as uh, trade unions are talking about next Tuesday, but also uh, the week after, and are not only talking about one day of strike, but Three days in a row, and back in 1995, it was uh, winter again. It was very cold, like it is in Paris, and people had to walk every day uh, through the the snow to uh, to work. And in the end, uh, the reform was just taken off the agenda because uh, of the unrest and discontent in in the country. And the um, the polls actually show that the French, for the moment, are uh, 60% 60% against that reform. Uh, so, you know, it's a question of diplomacy, uh, the correct words, because in the end, France needs that reform. Uh, it cannot continue to retire 62 when everybody else uh, retires at 66 or 67. It's also a question of public finances. Ennys Parier, thank
0: you so much for joining us on Monocle24.
4: You're listening to The Briefing.
0: Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work.
2: Providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today
0: or subscribe to get instant access online. We head now to the oldest society in the world, Japan. This week, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has issued a stark warning over the country's ageing population and has promised to address the issue by establishing a new government agency. Well, earlier on Monocle's Marcus Hippie heard from our Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson about the situation and he began by asking her what prompted this reaction from Mr Kishida.
5: Well, yesterday the parliamentary session opened in Japan and Fumio Kishida, the Prime Minister, Set out his uh, policy plan for the year, and one of the things he said is that um, that there's an absolute crisis in the country's birth rate. He he he's said quite a dramatic thing that has been very much quoted today. He said the country is on the brink of being made unable to to maintain the functions of society. It sounds very very serious, and I think really what's prompted this, as we all know, Japan society are not enough babies. Last year's birth rate was the lowest on record, lowest since 1899 when records started, uh, 800,000 births. And when you think in the, you know, it's the early 70s, there were 2 million births, just to set it in context. So there aren't going to be enough people to fund this increasing population of uh, old people in Japan. And that's the big crisis.
3: Now, Japan has been trying for years to boost the birth rate through, say, cash benefits and bonuses, but that clearly hasn't worked. What is going to be happening now?
5: Well, I think most people agree that the incentives have been too small, really, to make much of a difference to the birth rate. They, they've offered a bit of money, but it just hasn't been enough that, you know, the monthly um, allowance really won't make a massive difference to most people, particularly people living in Tokyo. And what Kishida is saying, although he's not mentioning how he's going to fund it, he's saying that the child... Support budget will be doubled, which would obviously be a massive bill. He's not talking about raising tax yet, but a lot of people are saying this is great news. But really, how are you going to fund it? Um, and I think the big, the big issue is that there's a there are local elections, very important local elections for Kishida in April, and many people think he's really holding off until after April to announce how all these things will be paid for. And you know, you you, you expect it will have to be a tax hike.
3: Fiona, having lived in Japan for many many years, do you agree with all this concern? For example, Kishita saying that the Japanese nation is, 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 is not necessarily able to maintain its societal functions in the future. Does it really feel like that in Tokyo?
5: I mean not quite yet in Tokyo but you know the projections are quite hair-raising particularly when you see the number of older people people are living longer than ever you've got a huge population of people over 100 here just for a start but but generally the population of retirees is is growing how's this going to be funded in the future and I think particularly as you say I have lived here a long time I've had two children here in Tokyo it's very expensive to have children in Tokyo and I think that's another big issue. Governor Koike, governor of Tokyo, she's also saying this is a crisis. She slightly had a go at the central government saying this is what the central government should be doing, but I'm going to do it anyway in Tokyo. She thinks it's a state issue. So she came out uh, last week with her plan, which is to raise uh, money for people who have children. She's going to give 5,000 yen per child for anyone in Tokyo, regardless, it's not going to be, you know, based on income. She's going to give that money. And she's also saying that people who have a second child won't have to pay for childcare up to the age of two. So this is a huge concession. Now, of course, again, massively, potentially increases the bill for Tokyo. Uh, I mean, you're talking about just this fiscal year, it's about 11 billion euros, this childcare policy, so it's again, you may be talking about tax rises. So I think how it's going to be funded is 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 still up in the air. But I think the bigger question about really tackling this, you know, making these incentives worthwhile for people in Tokyo, and um, which is the most expensive city to live in, you know, is it going to make a difference? And I think they've got to get serious about this. The the, the population is shrinking, birth rate sinking. Um, And, you know, you're seeing this across across East Asia. South Korea now has the lowest birth rate in the world. So I think it's interesting if, you know, people want to see some action, what is going to make a difference? And they're realizing you've really got to make it cheaper for people to have children in Japan.
3: That was Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Thank you very much.
0: And thanks also to Marcus Hippie for that too. Finally, on today's episode of The Briefing, when the time here in London is 12.26, uh, let's head to Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich to our radio bureau there. Juliet Linley is standing by to bring us the paper review. Hello, Juliet. How's Zurich looking today?
2: Hello, Emma. Bit or, cold, bit chilly, bit dreary, but here we are with our smiles on our faces. Smiles Desiree on our faces. and myself
0: and here two in the minu- studio. two minutes to the lake. So and if it all goes, exactly. I can go and look at some water.
2: Some freshwater swimming.
0: <laughs> Unlikely. Um, tell me what's happening where you are in the papers. What have you spotted? I'm um, going to start with the Italian papers, and
2: Algeria is very much in the headlines. Giorgio Meloni, the Prime Minister, is back from Algiers as Rome strives to become a bridge for North Africa trading with Europe. So she's happy with the fact that Italian energy giant Eni and Algeria's Sonatrack group have signed deals to boost Algiers export capacity in terms of energy, as Italy and Europe are of course easing away from Russian gas. So the Italians are gunning to ramp up energy imports from Algeria. They're hoping to become a hub. She, she really used the word hub for supplies between Africa and Europe in the coming years, leveraging their traditional ties. Now the agreements signed include attempts at isolating it Activities that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, looking at increasing the transport capacity for existing gas supplies and working on a new pipeline to transport hydrogen. The Italian Prime Minister also referred to undersea electrical cables and boosting Algeria's capacity to produce liquefied natural gas. Emma, so this is definitely a new diplomatic drive in Africa on Italy's behalf.
0: And it's pretty ambitious as well.
2: We love ambition and Giorgia Meloni is doing really well in the polls too. So good for her for now.
0: Okay, Um, let's move on to um, an interesting story about the number of women on the executive boards of the big companies in Switzerland. There has been a big jump.
2: I knew you would like that story. So it's great news for women in this country. Uh, the proportion of women on executive boards uh, in the country's largest listed companies has risen from 19% to 24 Okay, we're still far off. Higher numbers, but still, according to a, uh, a study by an HR consultancy, it's the largest increase in any European country over the last 12 months, Emma. So, um, this places Switzerland sixth in European rankings, above Germany and Denmark. Now, who takes a top spot? The UK, with 29% of board positions held by women. That's followed by Norway, Sweden, Finland, and France. And it's generally financial sector companies that are leading the way, Emma. So it's UBS, the largest Swiss bank. There, women hold 42% of board seats, and they're followed by Partners Group, Credit Suisse, and Zurich Insurance. Now, interestingly, the same study of executive board makeups found that foreign nationals occupy 73%. That's a large number of executive board positions in Switzerland's 20 largest companies. Now, if you want to compare that to Germany, well, only 37% of managers in Germany's top 40 companies. companies are non-Germans.
0: Juliet Linley in Zurich, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. And that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producer Paige Reynolds and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And our researcher was André Nicolai Parmintuan, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.